Hey, it's Coach Freddie here, inspiring people to do the things that inspire them. And welcome to the iHemp Revolution, where we'll be discussing the benefits of growing and using industrial hemp for people, planet, and profits. Conversations about the history, legalization, farming, harvesting, processing, building, manufacturing, investing, and how industrial hemp can benefit people's lives, heal the planet, and how it can be used to make thousands of products and boost the economy and business. So, are you ready to join the iHemp revolution? My guest today is Joy Beckerman. Joy Beckerman is the founder of Hemp Ace International out of Seattle, Washington, and has been in the industrial hemp movement and industry for more than 20 years, with 16 years in civil litigation and administrative law. She is a consultant and is available for hempcrete projects, business and educational presentations, public speaking engagements, and the very popular hands-on hempcrete, fiber, seed, bioplastic, and textile exhibit. Joy provides accurate data, compliance, and ethical services to meet all industrial hemp building material, textile, seed, oil, apparel, and textile inquiries and needs. She is dedicated to providing superior service, global supply, and expert networks. Joy holds several board positions. She is president of the Washington State Chapter of the Hemp Industries Association, commission member, Washington Cannabis Commission. Joy also has professional memberships with National Farmers Union, Northwest Farmers Union, Canadian Hemp Trade Alliance, International Hemp Building Association. So, Joy, welcome to the iHemp Revolution. <laughs> Thank you so much, Coach Freddie. It's really great to be here. And can you give us a little bit more background about yourself and how you got started and just why hemp and cannabis? Absolutely. I uh, was first introduced to industrial hemp in 1990 at a Grateful Dead show. I didn't know of even the concept of industrial hemp, though I certainly had been interest introduced to marijuana and cannabis in general. And I was handed a flyer um, in at that spring show in 1990. And it, uh, while I don't believe everything that I read, the information that was presented to me on that flyer, um, I reacted. Every cell in my body reacted to that information and it changed the trajectory and course of my life. I'd been under the belief up until that point that we were definitely destined to kill the planet, that the planet was dying, um, but that we should be peaceful and um, free from war and do the best that we could to be kind to the planet while we killed it. And so when I read this information, I was then presented with the reality that there was a major solution to many of the crises that our planet faces and, uh, and that that solution, industrial hemp, um, was illegal. And this, this was unacceptable to me. Yes. Grateful dead, huh? Indeed. <laughs> Well, good. Well, can you give us a brief history, you know, some high points about industrial hemp? 
Thank you so much for asking. One of my favorite stories to tell. Uh, you know, if we just even ponder Hempstead, Long Island, Hempstead County, Arkansas, uh, Hempstead, Texas, Hempel, North Carolina, Hempfield, Pennsylvania, the list goes on. We start to then realize that hemp, industrial hemp, is ingrained in the fabric of our entire country. It's simply been removed from history, removed from the museums. There's no mention of it at the Smithsonian, always disappointing in our nation's capital. But our very first cannabis law was actually in 1619 at the Jamestown Colony, Virginia, which ordered all farmers to make trial, meaning grow, the Indian hemp seed. Then there were additional mandatory laws through the mid-1700s. In fact, um, in 1763 to 1767 in Jamestown, when there was a shortage, it was unlawful for farmers not to grow hemp. And from 1631 to the early 1800s, hemp was legal tender in most of the U.S. We paid our taxes with it. Uh, we bartered with it. Uh, and then in 1850, the U.S. Census indicates 8,327 hemp plantations in the United States. And it's significant to note that a plantation was defined as no less than a 2,000-acre farm. So this 8,327 hemp plantations is a tremendous amount of acreage, but it didn't even count any uh, industrial hemp farms that were smaller than 2,000 acres, and there were certainly family plots from coast to coast. We never actually satisfied um, our own need for industrial hemp. We don't today. We never did, and neither did England. And outside of U.S. history, I, I always find it um Interesting to note that, for example, even in 1812, uh, the, one of the largest importers of industrial hemp, importers to England, importers to the United States, was Russia. And in fact, Napoleon strategically attacked Russia to cut off England's supply of industrial hemp in 1812 to cripple its navies for their particular war of 1812, not ours. Um, and then the same thing happened here to us. We criminalized industrial hemp in 1937. Um, demonizing it with marijuana, many believe, and I also subscribe to the belief that, um, you know, it was industrial hemp was really uh, the the threat, not marijuana, um, and that, um, you know, marijuana took the fall for industrial hemp. But in any event, what comes along after that, other than Ford making a biocomposite car from hemp, sisal, wheat, and jute um, fibers, is that World War II comes along. And, uh, and now um, the Philippines has been attacked, and we were getting a lot of our hemp and those types of fibers from Manila. And so our supply then of industrial hemp was cut off for World War II. And we have, of course, the incredible film Hemp for Victory in 1942, produced by the USDA, um, teaching our farmers, hey, you do need a special marijuana tax stamp, dot, 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 now that we've criminalized it, but we need you to grow hemp. And so there was this tremendous campaign put forth by the USDA and 4-Hers to grow uh, 400,000 tons of uh, industrial hemp throughout the war ending in 1946 and then of course our last hemp harvest before this new research which we'll get into later on um, was in 1954 wow that's a lot of history there thank mm -hmm. you thank, thank you very much um, you, you know right now uh, tell us a little bit about the industrial hemp farm act of uh, 2015 and the senate bill 134 
This is the real action call here, Coach Freddie. Um, as you know, we uh, here in the United States, the Agricultural Act of 2014, commonly known as the Farm Bill, um, included a, a historical one and a half page short, sweet, plainly written amendment, Section 7606, called the, uh, the Legitimacy of Industrial Hemp Research. So on some level here, in states where hemp is legal, our institutions of higher learning, which is defined appropriately in, in the bill, along with our uh, departments of agriculture, are allowed to promulgate rules for research. And we'll get into why that's important for the successful reintroduction in a second. So before I talked about the Industrial Hemp Farming Act, thought I would tell you that the federal government here in the United States has actually already, it was signed into law on February 7th of 2014 um, by President Obama and, and passed very overwhelmingly by both the House and the Senate before it got to him to reintroduce state-by-state state industrial hemp in a, in a way that we will figure out what grows in our different states and our lands. So then we have a, a bill that has not yet passed and needs tremendous support, the Senate Bill 134. Again, this is a federal U.S. bill called the Industrial Hemp Farming Act of 2015. It was also, let it be known, filed in 2013 and then refiled in our new legislative session. It's short, it's sweet, uh, and all it does is it removes industrial hemp from the Controlled Substances Act. It defines industrial hemp, which, without confusing the audience too much, was for the first time defined and distinguished from marijuana, the first time in U.S. history, within that farm bill, that section 7606 I was telling you about. And it's simply defined as any plant, um, cannabis sativa L, uh, any part of the plant cannabis that contains less than 0.3% THC. And that same definition is what is put in this Industrial Hemp Farming Act of 2015, just saying, hey, any cannabis that's less than 3.3% THC is industrial hemp and it's removed from the Controlled Substances Act. We need support in for the Senate Bill 134 version of it, we have the sister bill in the House federally called HR 525. That has already gained a great amount of co-sponsors, though we would please suggest that folks get their representatives to co-sponsor it. But call your state senators. This is super easy to do by going to votehemp.com, clicking the Take Action tab, and then selecting What Can I Do. Again, votehemp.com, Take Action tab, and selecting What Can I Do. You will go right to your state senators and representatives and ask them, please co-sponsor Senate Bill 134 is what you'll ask your senators. And if not, if you're not going to, tell me why and start that dialogue. They must respond as, your, as uh, they're, they're your, you're their constituent. They are your public servant. They must respond, and it will open up that dialogue. Wow. Thank you very much for that explanation. That opened my eyes. Yay. So, Joy, what are some of the myths about hemp? Well, there are certainly plenty of them. It, back in the 90s when we first, uh, the, the movement really started to gain hold, uh, thanks to Jack Herrer's book, The Emperor Wears No Clothes, and some of those early pioneers, uh, John Wortchafter and the like, um, we, we used to say things like, you know, uh, 
You don't need to any fertilizer or water or pesticides with industrial hemp. It grows anywhere. And these people still believe, departments of agriculture even, who are our heroes of industrial hemp in some states, um, often believe that. And, and while you certainly can grow industrial hemp and starve it, and, and it will surely grow, it's a very strong weed, um, that's not how really commercial farms work. You wouldn't starve your crop. And uh, certainly in Canada, where industrial hemp has been legal since since 1998, um, they have a booming industry there. We're purchasing 90% of their seeds, seed oil, and seed derivatives. And uh, certainly there's a whole lot of fertilizer and irrigation going into those crops. So that's one big myth. Um, hemp, sure, will grow almost anywhere, um, but the cultivars that we have now that meet today's demand um, in the current market, they don't necessarily grow everywhere. Now, sometimes as we go through these research um, new plots that are happening, legal industrial hemp research fields that are being grown in legal states, um, we're finding some failed cultivars. Now, of course, that's why research is important. Perhaps it was the soil makeup and not necessarily that the cultivar won't grow in that region or in that soil or in that climate, um, but we need to, we need to relearn that it will grow anywhere when it, it truly doesn't. Another is that hemp creates four times more paper than trees per acre. And that is true. However, the full story of that is that it's over a 20-year period. So in 1916, when the USDA hired researcher Leister Dewey to grow uh, industrial hemp and do experiments and research on it, he grew his fields uh, in Washington, D.C., which, by the way, a corner of the Pentagon is built on uh, Leister Dewey's research fields. And in that Bulletin 404, if you Google USDA Bulletin 404, you would get Leister Dewey's research results. And that says that, hey, if you take an acre of trees that are used to for paper, it would take about 20 years to grow a tree suitable for that craft processing for uh, wood cellulose for paper. But if you take that same acre and you plant it with hemp, and you take that same 20-year period, over that 20-year period, that acre of hemp is going to produce four times more paper than that acre of trees, again, in a 20-year period. So those are some common myths. A major um, myth that uh, gets in the way, and, and I guess there are two that are related, of moving forward as different states legalize both marijuana and industrial hemp. And I'm in Washington right now where we have legalized marijuana and we have outdoor legal grows there. We have over a two million, dollar, uh, two million square foot canopy um, here in our state, but industrial hemp is not legal. Now, folks here who have spent, our outdoor marijuana growers, uh, to their credit, who have spent hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of dollars uh, for to sort of um, meet these moving target compliance issues, a true gauntlet of eligibility to comply with our newly developing laws, they are scared to death of cross-pollination of industrial hemp with marijuana. Now, most of these growers are more sophisticated than the average Joe, which believes the myth that industrial hemp is the male plant and marijuana is the female plant, when in reality they are both monoecious, dioecious, even hermaphrodite. Um, that's not true that one is male and one is female. However, it's true that male pollen will uh, pollinate a female plant. This is why marijuana growers pull their male plants. And they, there is a, 
and this is in most outdoor marijuana states. It's a big problem in Oregon right now where there is le- where there are legal outdoor marijuana grows. There is a major concern that the low to no THC uh, cannabis varieties, industrial hemp, that those male plants will pollinate the female marijuana plants, which, of course, get a high dollar for a high THC content. And as we now know, side note, high terpene profile, a quality terpene profile, and even non-psychoactive cannabinoid profile. But in any event, the reality is, that a bee is only going to travel about three miles from its hive. So we really only need to worry three miles as far as bees are concerned. As far as pollen traveling, there is this tremendous hysteria. I've heard everything from, but but hemp pollen will travel 2,000 miles, to hemp pollen will travel 200 miles, to, but what about the giant hemp pollen clouds that we hear about in historical Kentucky? So there's a famous book called The History of Kentucky Hemp. And, you know, anytime we're looking at a historical book, there's some some exaggeration uh, and, and creative license that takes place. And there's this story of this hemp pollen cloud. Now, hemp pollen is large. It's going to take one heck of a wind and strange climactic condition for that hemp pollen to travel very far at all. I'd, I'd be interested to see if it will travel more than a foot. So that is is a myth that uh, that hemp is going to hemp pollen is going to travel anywhere more than you know particularly three miles um, and will pollinate and cross pollinate and reduce the value of outdoor marijuana grows. Wow, didn't know anything about that. So that's very interesting. Yes, and thank you so much for thinking so. I'll tell you what is shocking, and I have to spend um, a lot of my time, you know, trying to heal these two communities. We've been together for tens of thousands of years, and certainly the marijuana and industrial hemp movements have worked together hand in hand, you know, uh, since the 1970s, um, but even more so closely since the 1990s. However, folks think that it's the same um, special interest working against industrial hemp that we had in the beginning of um, our the 20th century, which would be petrochemical companies, uh, tree paper companies, uh, this type of thing, the better living through chemistry type of interest as that was being developed. However, that's definitely not our enemies anymore. These petroleum companies and these paper and other fiber companies, they're putting tons of money into R&D for alternative fibers and biomass sources. They're well aware that they have a finite supply. So it's not them anymore. In legal states, and by legal, I mean where marijuana has been legal and where it's legal outdoors, although there's hysterical concern for indoor grows as well, that the intake bans will take in pollen from industrial hemp. But our largest the folks who spend the most money lobbying against industrial hemp in the legal marijuana states are the legal licensed marijuana growers. So it's an interesting um, development that now all of a sudden the folks really pushing back um, are is our own cousin, marijuana. Wow. That is so, you know, there, there's a lot of confusion out there and and as to what is legal and what is not. 
Indeed, there most certainly is, and this is particularly because of the resins of the cannabis plant. Uh, well, we'll say the genus cannabis, because really there are three divergent species within the genus cannabis. There's cannabis sativa, which would be your oil, seed, and fiber, low resin, non-psychoactive crops. That's commonly known as industrial hemp, and that is grown about four inches apart for its valuable stock and seed. And we call those different kinds of plants varieties or cultivars. And then we have cannabis indica and cannabis afghanica. That would be your high resin, psychoactive drug crop um, grown about four feet apart for its bushy, narcotic, or medicine-filled leaves and buds. And those different types of plants we call strains as opposed to cultivars or varieties. However, within both of these, uh, within these three divergent species of the cannabis plant genus, we have THC, the psychoactive cannabinoid, um, and that's what everyone has, including the government, the United Nations, and most other developed countries have their panties in a wad about, is the THC. Um, but also, of course, the genus cannabis is filled with incredibly valuable medicinal healing, and oh, the research that's coming in over the across the world of non-psychoactive cannabinoids. Uh, the most popular uh, one known most about is CBD cannabidiol. So what is legal about industrial hemp is absolutely everything except, and by the way, it, everything has always been legal about industrial hemp except these three things, which were criminalized by virtue of the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, and that is the cultivation of industrial hemp, viable industrial hemp seeds, meaning seeds capable of germination because God forbid they would what? grow, and we just said that cultivation was unlawful. So cultivation, viable seeds, and the resins of the industrial hemp plant. But here's what's interesting. When we look at the marijuana definition of the Controlled Substances Act, which, by the way, was adopted word for word from the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, so they didn't change one word of that definition, and they, using racism, uh, defined marijuana with an H. But they use the word resin three times in that two-sentence definition. And so what the feds want you to know is we don't care whether you're getting your resins from the marijuana or the industrial hemp. All we're saying is the resins are Schedule One controlled substances, so keep your hands off them. Now, resins mean all of the cannabinoids and various other properties, whether it's THC psychoactive or CBD or CBG or CBN non-psychoactive. What is interesting is that we have now created a whole industry here nationally and passed many, many laws statewide and have several CBD bills federally right now. We have three different CBD bills specific to cannabidiol on the federal level right now. Um, and these state bills have legalized CBD or these resins. So... Even though, by the letter of the law, we expect if the, ever the government's going to come down on us, they're going to say, listen, it's plain as day that any resin of the genus cannabis is, uh, is a Schedule One controlled substance. The fact is that nobody has gone to jail yet, and it's a booming industry right now. If you get on eBay.com or Amazon.com, you can buy CBD online, CBD oils, powders, vape pens, um, 
technically, under the letter of the law, I suppose the feds would say it's a Schedule One controlled substance. But again, nobody's gone to jail. And in February of this year, the Federal Drug Administration um, issued six different warning le letters to six different cannabidiol companies from three different offices of compliance within the FDA. But they didn't mention a thing about them messing with a Schedule One controlled substance. They said, hey, you can't make these medical claims without proper research. You're saying your product does this, you're saying your product does that, and you can't. It's unlawful. It's the same type of letter that these offices of compliance would have issued to a vitamin supplement company or a new dog food company. Didn't make a big deal at all that these were cannabis products. So that was interesting. Then in May, the FDA uh, released a, they have a great FDA. FAQ page. If you put FDA marijuana FAQ, you'll get an interesting information from the FDA where they say, hey, you're not allowed to call CBD or, or sell them or market them as dietary supplements, particularly because there are three other pharmaceutical companies who are in the middle of INDs, which is the acronym for Investigational New Drug. And until that research is done, the FDA isn't saying it's a dietary supplement at all, but they issued those warnings. And yet still, no one has gone to jail. And a lot of these products are being shipped from Europe, from China, from any manner of the world, these CBD extractions. And while some of these shipments have been held up by the DEA at the border, they've ultimately been released. So it's very interesting that while under the letter of the law, these non-psychoactive resins are Schedule One controlled substances, nobody has gone to jail or been taken to court yet. Very interesting stuff. Very interesting, in fact. Yes. So I want to ask you one last question here before we go. What are you doing now that has you most excited about industrial hemp? Well, you know, hemp building materials, I think, are, and hempcrete, obviously, is my number one. Most people associate me with hempcrete because of the 50,000 known products that we can make with industrial hemp, hempcrete's my favorite. It's a mold-resistant, rot-resistant, pest-resistant, fire-resistant, carbon-sequestering, carbon-negative Side note, when we have a local supply of hemp herd, building material that provides optimal indoor air quality and uh, is superior performance in terms of thermal mass, uh, regulation of temperature, regulation of humidity, and of course the impact environmentally that hempcrete will make as a replacement of infill. We can replace everything, the Tyvek, the siding, the drywall, the horrible pink fiberglass stuff, all of that can be replaced with hemp and lime. And of course hempcrete will last hundreds of years, three to five hundred years you're dwelling, you're building your commercial project and when the life of that building is over um, and it has sequestered a ton of carbon you can crack that hempcrete up and put it into your next hempcrete building why do we know this that's because hempcrete isn't a new thing coach freddie hemp and lime building have been around for thousands of years and there is a, a structure in japan in fact a hempcrete structure that is anywhere from four to five hundred years old this is not a new development building with hemp and lime so building materials are my most exciting thing, delivering that through my partner um, Hemp Technologies, and that is www.hemp-com. Um, 
hemptechnologies.com and then our hempcrete workshops where we're creating the industry and teaching people about this totally available we've hemp technologies built the first permitted hempcrete homes in the united states in 2009 in Asheville, north carolina and i had the pleasure of touring that home and then staying in, in the second permitted home the now house in Asheville, and uh and so anyway, creating this industry and letting folks know who have, whether they want to do a tining home, a custom home, a cookie cutter home, a large, gorgeous, spacious home, or a commercial project, we teach them about hempcrete and that that's what they want to use. The energy efficiency savings um, is tremendous. We'll more than pay for itself. Wow. And, and Joy, I yes. want to let you know that on my bucket list is a tiny hemp house. Yay, I love to hear that. It's it can easily be done, Coach Freddie. You know what I say? I say let's do a hempcrete workshop in the Virgin Islands and we will do your tiny pot your hemp pod. You if you did or go to hemp technologies, hemp technologies.com, you'll look at the hemp pod and we'll do a workshop right there with you and get that hemp pod built. What do you say? Oh, fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. So, you know, Joy, I want to thank you for being a guest on the iHemp Revolution. I can't thank you enough for having me, Coach Freddie. I hope we get to do it again. The thing about half an hour with hemp is the story of hemp is huge. We have industries from uh, seeds, which is nutraceutical, cosmeceutical, industrial. Obviously, as most people know, it's the highest profile of essential fatty acids of the entire planet animal kingdom, arguably second only to certain fish, though you'd have to deal with mercury and you'd have to kill the fish. The highest uh, protein, highest form of digestible protein of the entire plant and animal kingdom is the hemp seed. This includes soy, beef, chicken, all of that. And why is this? That's the unique amino acid profile which of the hemp seed, which contains all the amino acids except for lysine. So we're talking food, oil, nanotechnology, fibers, uh, textiles, paper, twine, yarn, cordage, apparel, uh, building materials. The list goes on and on. So boy, we could do this. We could do this all the time, Coach Freddie. Oh, fantastic. Now, your website is hempace.com? It is hempace.com and also encourage people to check out hempcreteworks.com. And you could uh, email joy at joy at hempace.com. Perfect. Love to hear from you. Okay. And I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in today and make sure that you subscribe to the iHemp Revolution podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and give us a review. Go to facebook.com forward slash iHemp Revolution. Like us, tell your friends, and help spread the word about iHemp Revolution on Twitter and LinkedIn and how using industrial hemp can benefit people, heal the planet, and provide long-term profits. This is your host, Coach Freddie, inspiring people to do the things that inspire them. And thanks for joining the iHemp Revolution.